And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan, on what is now your New Year's Eve. It is indeed. Yeah, sort of all through the house, there's sounds of people running outside, spraying the backyard for spiders and cleaning, you know, sweeping up patios and getting ready for uh, coming celebrations. We have some friends coming around, including a few who you know. Elisa Krasnestein's coming around for New Year's Eve. Uh, well, I, I will indeed. It'll be the last. I won't get to see her, uh, obviously, next New Year's Eve because she she should be in in Paris of all places. So yes, it should be fun. And how about you? Do you have big New Year's plans? Um, actually, there's a restaurant nearby that I I'm very fond of, and it's, it's difficult to get New Year's Eve reservations. And I don't like to go to loud, raucous places. But this place has my favorite chicken pot pie in the States. <laughs> it's hard to get a really good chicken pot pie. I know that doesn't sound like a spectacular New Year's Eve dinner, but I thought, on New Year's Eve, you should eat what you want to eat. <laughs> Fair enough. That sounds reasonable. Yes, well, I, I have to say, you know, sort of, we're having a party as much as anything because nobody invites me anywhere, Gary, so I really thought I should have my own party. And then oh, I have some people. So I wasn't sitting all alone at home with the kids mournfully unwanted and unloved, you know. <laughs> oh, I can understand that entirely. But you can have outdoor parties there on New Year's Eve. You can have wonderful, sunny, warm parties. Uh, well, yes, it's going to be 30 degrees and humid today. That's what about, oh, I don't know, 80 degrees, 85 degrees, something like that? Yeah, something like that. So, yes, and uh, not terribly hot today. We had the really hot weather just, just a few days ago. It was up in the low, hun low, low hundreds here for a few days which was Whoa. unpleasant. I but, would think so. And then, of course, you know, sort of we've got quiet day on New Year's Day and then a busy day here on the 2nd of January uh, with the family because it's my birthday. Ah, oh, happy birthday. Thank you. I'm going to be 48 years old, which sounds older and older every time I think about it. That's funny. To me, it sounds younger and younger. Well, that's because you're older and older too, Gary. <laughs> well, yes, you're never going to catch up with me. <laughs> no, though, though, you know, in fact, speaking of never going to catch up, we've not podcast about this, I think, but since we it was tweeted about and there's a comment going past, we didn't acknowledge your 20th anniversary with Locust, did we? I don't think we've mentioned that on the podcast, and I don't think, well, because I didn't realize it. I thought it was next year, and I, I emailed you and said, wait a minute. I, I thought uh, we were writing our year in review columns, and I thought I'd go back and look up the first one I ever wrote, which is now available only in some primitive text file because I think I, <laughs> I think I was faxing the reviews to Locust at that time. I realized the first year in review column I'd written was 1992, and the first sh very short column was in December of 1991. So, so I was a year off. Wow. But now that means that the column, uh, the year in review essay that you've just written, which will appear in the February issue of Locus, uh, is in fact your 20th anniversary installment then, pretty much. It's the it's 20th year in review. And wow. as, as I mentioned at the beginning of them, I think I've been wrong in all of them. <laughs> Are you tempted to collect them together? No. As a matter of fact, when I was collecting the reviews, uh, the year in... Actually, that's not true. Uh, the first volume of collected reviews um, included the year in review essays. Mm -hmm. Because it, 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 at that point, it was a summary of... The, I, I put the year in review essays at the beginning of that year's column. So it okay. kind of became yep. an introduction. And after a while, it just became there wasn't enough space in the book to have everything in so it was yeah doing those would have been cutting out more reviews and just run out of time there are a lot of columns there they're over i counted up i, I don't know what the latest count is i counted up over 1200 reviews uh, sometime last year yeah 
Well, well see, because you started in 92, right? Right. Because Now that I'm thinking about it, see, I did my first year in review. It appeared in the in the February 1998 issue. Okay. So, so that's got to be 12 or 14 years or something. 14 years. Mm-hmm. And of I'm course, guessing. Yeah. I, I, I've never gone back to check because uh, I, every time I think about my lunch over day, I keep remembering that Russell Letson and Farron Miller and I think Carolyn Cushman were all reviewing before I started. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea how many they must have done at this point. I have no idea. I haven't gone back and looked either, though. Per- perhaps I should. Um, and, of course, uh, I think it's this March will be my 10th anniversary as um, reviews editor for the magazine. As reviews editor? That's ah. that's the longest anybody has ever had as a reviews editor, other than Charles himself. I, I, well, actually, I'm the only well, person. Of course, was the reviews editor the only reviews editor. I'm the only mm-hmm. person. I'm the only person other than Charles. Well, no one. Has this no. Yes. Okay. So. Uh, because if if you think about it, we had. Um, well, there's there, there's you know there was Charles, and then I was working with Charles. Then there was Charles. Um, so then then I was just sort of I'm working with Liza. But before that, it was just Charles solo from, oh, mm-hmm. from the beginning of the magazine in what 1968, through till two thousand and two. Right. When he began to feel like he just wanted, well, personally, I think he just wanted an excuse to be nattering to me all the time. But we'll say it was because he wanted to get a second opinion on the magazine and on what was happening. And I, you know, it was an excuse well, yeah. to be involved. So yes, so that's kind of fun. I mean, you, you sort of you begin to clock up lots of issues and you realize it's been 120 issues of that, that I've been doing that for. And it does begin to sound like a long time though when you suddenly think, well, hang on, I joined Locus in well, August of '97, so I'm coming 15 years mm-hmm. this year as well. So. Well, the, the thing is, one of the things I uh, noticed in, in looking at that ancient 1992 column is that it, 20 years doesn't sound like a long time in chronology, but when you look at the evolutionary developments, not necessarily in the fiction of the field, but in, in publishing, because what we were worried about in the early 90s, we were worried about borders. Sure. We were worried that borders and Barnes & Noble were taking over. And, yes. And, these corporate, and, um, and now, you know, this past year, we're terrified that Borders goes out of business. Well, oh. y- yes, but you would also appreciate there's a significant difference. Of course. Because the significant difference is in 1993, when, when we were worried about the rise of Borders, it's because they're killing off all of the independents who are selling all of, you know, all the in- independent distributors right. who are selling all of our books. Now, the only guys at all who are selling all of our books are going out of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from all that ebook stuff, assuming that all actually is working out. He says deliberately to sound like a lot out for a minute. I know, I know. It's, uh, but, but that's that's my point. We're always worrying about something which, uh, the the the, uh, the metaphor I was using is, is is dinosaurs and meteors because the the meteor destroying the independence was the was was the chains, and then the meteor destroying the chains was Amazon, and and even now uh, I've got I was thinking about how rapidly things are changing mm. uh, because I about maybe. Four years ago, I went out and bought one of the old first-generation Sony ebook readers. Yep. Um, and it's it's might as well be up there with my Limoges China now, for all yeah. I look at it. Yes, I, I have one, and in fact, every now and again, Marianne says that she'd like to try a Kindle, and I think, well, I could lend you the old Sony reader, but it feels, I mean, and I, I paid whatever it was at the time, you know, a couple hundred dollars for it or something. Oh yeah, and, expensive. And I look at them thinking, um, but that's really clunky and horrid and old. And you know, Sophie, my ten-year-old daughter, who's been on the podcast, 
mm. she got a Kindle Touch for Christmas, ah. which you know cost half that, and you can get a, a Kindle now, a base grade Kindle for what, a quarter of that. So you know it, the whole thing's just changed dramatically. Uh, and I see, I think I saw yesterday that HarperCollins reported a hundred thousand ebook sales on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. Wow. On Christmas Day itself. And I also saw a report that Amazon, whilst they never reveal the number of Kindle sales that they make, did say they were shipping more than a, a million Kindles a week during December. Good grief. And that's not even counting what iPads and various other tablets are doing. Exactly. Exactly. And we are not that far away, according to rumors, from the iPad 3. Mm-hmm which will be more powerful and more storage and a better screen and all that kind of stuff. And so, yes, it's, it's like, it, 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 I think, okay, as, as you know, I spend an awful lot of time reading short fiction. One of the rising mm -hmm. discussion points that I've noticed or rising points of view I've noticed is people saying, I no longer really want to talk about the difference between online magazines and print magazines because it just doesn't mean much anymore. They're just different ways of getting a hold of the stories and it's not novel or different to be published online. It's just something mm -hmm. that happens. Uh, increasingly, I suspect, yeah, in a year or two, I think we'll stop talking about ebooks because they'll just be books. I'm sure that's true in terms of magazines because the distinction between online magazines and print magazines is already gone. I mean, uh, half the people I know who read Asimov's or FNSF are reading them online now. Yes. Um, when I want to pick up a copy of one of those magazines, I don't subscribe. I should, but I don't. Um, I, I'll go and get the online version of it. I do think there's a distinction in that um, when you have editors with impressive track records like Sheila Williams or Gordon Van Gelder, being published in a magazine edited by such a distinguished editor still has a panache. The panache doesn't come from its being print. The panache comes from its being very well and very professionally edited. Sure. Uh, I mean, I will say I subscribe to both Asimov's and FNSF, and I haven't mm -hmm. bought a print copy of either in a year and a half or more. Um, I may very well. I mean, uh, every five years or so, uh, I, I and Gordon will tell you I'm lying now because it's been more than five years. But I'll subscribe to FNSF for a year, and I enjoy it. I don't read everything. I don't have to read the short fiction the way you do. I like the review columns. But what happens is they have a pile of 12 of them at the end of the year. Yeah. And I don't want them I – mean, I'm not a collector. I don't want a complete set of FNSF. No. So having them filed away in my uh, iPad is, is perfectly happy. I, I have no problem with that. Mm. Well, yes. I mean, so I think, there's a few issues with how um, the iPad manages magazines or the Kindle manages magazines. But I will say, uh, with FNSF and Asimov's just dropping into my onto my Kindle every month in a nice, neat way, it does make life much simpler. And actually, what weirdly happens is you begin to resent all of the non-readily available ones. It's like, I read Interzone, and Interzone are a terrific company, or, or TTA, Press are a terrific company, and they mm. generously send me both Interzone and um, the, the Black Static. I was going to go blank on that for a second. Uh, yeah. So they sent it to me, which is great, and I'm very grateful. Uh, and I think at the moment they are—they're just starting to make their stuff available, but they're kind of still big, heavy PDFs. And part of me wants—I just want like a nice, neat um, electronic copy of that, and then I can just have it drop into my inbox, and I'll read it, and life will be happy, and I don't have to feel bad that they're shipping the stuff all over the world. 
I mean, I had this conversation mm-hmm. because the same conversations go round and around again. I had it with uh, Elisa Krasnerstein, in fact, over coffee yesterday because we were talking about something or other. Uh, that's all right. We're talking about Kim Westwood's novel, The Courier's Bicycle, <laughs> which Farron Miller is reviewing for Locus. And I said just in, in, in passing, because it was the 30th of December, I said to her, I said, well, I, th- I think it's in the next issue, the review. I think it is. Um, mm-hmm. And or it might be the February issue. I'm not sure. Anyway, I think it's the next issue. And I said, but we'll have that tomorrow. And she looked at me and she sort of smiled and said, yes, we will, won't we? Because, of course, it'll be the 31st of December. So probably, you know, either late on the 31st mm-hmm. or earlier on the 1st, everyone will have the issue of Locus, and suddenly they care about it again, at least out here, where it was all ready to be, you know, uh, hidden away and forgotten about, you know, because it was coming in six weeks late. So digital that that digital stuff has worked out really, 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 really well. And I, I can well imagine a world with very few print magazines at all in it. Not so much print books, but print magazines. And... Uh, deeply affecting how short fiction comes out. You know, that's obviously something that's happening mm-hmm. right now. Um, and you're seeing short stories pop up. I think I told you about the case of the James S.A. Corey story, did I? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I was right. First of all, I, I, like you, I spent part of this last week writing my year in review. And I identified my top 10 books of the year and my top 10 stories of the year, which is something Charles used to ask me to do. And one of my favorite books for various reasons of the year was Leviathan Wakes by James Corey. Enjoyed it a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sequel coming May or June or something. Anyway, turns out that they published a prequel novelette uh, via Orbit's short story ebook program. And I mm-hmm. wasn't keeping track of the Orbit short story ebook program, so I only saw it after I delivered my year's best. Uh-huh. And I've, you know, and you sit there going, well, that's one story that I would have been very eager to read that has completely fallen through the cracks as far as my year's best reading is concerned. And you know, I ask myself, well, how many other times has this happened? And I know for a fact it happens a lot. I mean, I try to pick it up, you know, the two or three original stories in the latest Peter Beagle collection. There's uh, an original story in the new Margot Lanigan collection. That stuff I'm kind of tuned to keeping track of. But when you start getting one-shot publications of stories, all that kind of thing, it becomes very difficult. Um, and I think we're just going to see more and more and more of that happen. Well, one of the things that I'm curious about when that happens, though, and you've got a, an online story, is what happens to the archiving of it? Um, yeah. There's a... Well, for example... Um, Two unrelated things, but not entirely unrelated. Uh, one of the things I wanted to, one of the people I wanted to mention on this week's podcast was one of the great pulp collectors of America, um, mm-hmm. uh, Rusty Hevelin, who, yeah. who passed away just uh, this past week. And he was, I want to get back to Rusty in a minute because he was one of my few contacts, possibly my last, no, yeah, possibly my last living contact with, with what they call first fandom, people yeah. who were actually fans before the first world con. But he also ran a pulp con, which I've never gone to, but, and he was a huckster, and he had a phenomenal collection of fanzines and, and pulps and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What happens to pulp collectors in the age of the e-zine, for example? Um, so that brings me to the second thing, which is unrelated but related, a book I would like to read, um, which I've just seen announced called, wonderful title, Stephen King's Wang. What? I've not heard of Steve- this book. What is this? Okay. Stephen King's Wang is a uh, media professor. The full title is Stephen King's Wang, The Literary History of Word Processing, because Stephen King 
was one of the first commercial writers to use a Wang. Remember the old Wang? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Eight-inch discs and that sort of thing. And uh, and, and so this guy, Mas Matthew uh, Kirschenbaum, has written a history of um, word processing in literature, starting with uh, Mark Twain, I think, is famously the first writer to submit a typewritten manuscript for Life on the Mississippi. Okay. And that's the beginning of this interaction between uh, between liter literary technology and literature. Yeah. And yeah. It, it raises the question of, can you be a pulp collector or, or a fanzine collector now in the way you once were? Are all these things archivable forever? Is anybody actually saving them? What happens to issues of fanzines or, uh, or even professional magazines like FNSF and, and, and Asimov's, are they forever available online? No. I mean, okay. So, okay. I work in online related area. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will tell you that anything published online is available forever because it gets archived mm -hmm. through things like the Wayback Machine and that kind of stuff and gets caught in various hollows of the internet. Even things, for example, like Ellen Datlow's Sci Fiction mm -hmm. is archived somewhere and if you know how to look you can find it and I know that for example the um, Library of Congress is putting a lot of work into archiving stuff I mean I had a very mm. surreal experience where I was contacted by the National Library of Australia asking if they could archive my Twitter feed and my uh, blog which I've had a very surreal experience Your Twitter feed is going to be in the National Library of Australia yeah yeah it is I suspect uh, my, along with lots and lots of other people, it's not particularly special. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so but nevertheless, I mean, uh, the, the problem, okay, but when you talk about something like the Library of Congress or the National Library of Australia, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased that they're doing uh, your Twitter feed because the problem, what made the pulp collectors like Rusty so valuable is that they were accumulating these magazines at a time when libraries would not take a second look at them. Yeah. There were very few libraries. Uh, academic libraries, public libraries, who would keep what were think, thought of as disposable zines. And the same thing's true with comic books, obviously. Uh, it's especially true of fanzines, because I've talked um, both to um, Andy Sawyer at uh, the Liverpool uh, University of Liverpool Library, and uh, I know that uh, Rob Latham has been trying to uh, develop the Riverside Collection yeah. in, uh, at the University of California. They have a really difficult time tracking down things like old fanzines. Yes. Oh. No so, so my question is, if libraries are archiving online zines, that's great, but are they still treating science fiction zines as something not worth archiving? Um, I don't know. That I don't know. But I think that they have an enormous problem in the modern era because we, we talk about archiving this stuff. But uh, to give you an idea, I have 21,000 tweets in my twi Twitter feed, Twitter stream, mm -hmm. since I started tweeting three years ago or whatever it was. 141 character, 140 characters a pop on average, hundreds mm. of thousands of words of meaningless drivel usually go through through um, uh, Twitter. So you got to ask, how do you make use of it? I mean, when there was a an issue of a fanzine, it was all focused and organized, and all that sort of stuff. Um, that well, also, also the fact that print, uh, for all its drawbacks that we talk about now. Print worked for, well, you know, it's, it's worked for a couple of thousand years now, at least. Yeah. You go yeah. back to the Library of Alexandria. And I remember talking to um, a friend who was, at that time, was the uh, archival librarian at New York University in Washington Square. 
and had just received uh, all of Peter Straub's papers, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and all of the discs and all, because I know when, uh, when Peter and, and, and Steve King were collaborating on the first of their uh, two novels, um, that they were, were sending word process, they, they, were, they were sending stuff to each other via telephone modem. <laughs> uh, and, and the collaboration exists in a series of files which are on probably, maybe not Wang's, but whatever they were using in the 70s sure, when the sure. Talisman came out. Um, and what he told me he did, because one of the problems with modern archiving of digital texts is you have to either keep some technology from every generation so you can read these things, or you do what he does as a stopgap, you print everything out and archive that. Yes. You keep, you keep the electronic forms, but the question is, 100 years from now, are we still going to be able to read Wang discs? No. 100 years from now, Wang discs sounds like... What it sounds like now! I mean, it does, I, actually, yeah. When you said Stephen King's Wang, it did not occur to me that you meant a computer device. I'm not about to ask what did occur to you then. Good man. I wouldn't know. Okay. But, but, you know, uh, what does occur to me as well is it's, there are a lot of places where the archiving mechanisms can't be aimed easily. Mm -hmm. um, places like the, like the Orbit short fiction setup, all of the Amazon stuff that's offered for sale, where probably under the ISBN requirements they should re register copies with the Library right. of Congress, etc., but possibly don't, you know, because there's always stuff popping up in odd places. And even then, you know, I think with the rise of electronic publication and distribution, the sheer volume of noise has yeah. increased so much that it becomes almost impossible to assay the thing. I mean, it's like one of the classic things I remember people talking about even 15 years ago was, you know, once upon a time, people took a batch of photos and they'd be put in a shoebox onto the bed. Somebody dies, they get pulled out, they become historical photos, kind of thing, socially mm -hmm. speaking. But you kind of knew what was happening. Now everybody's taking photos on telephones and on iPods and, and there's mm -hmm. millions and millions and millions. And... They get, they don't get archived, they don't get dealt with, at least as far as I'm aware. And there's no real way of bringing this incredible volume of stuff because, of course, you know, you turn around and say there are, I don't know how many iPhones out there, but there's, you know, there's five or ten million handheld phone, you know, cameras out there basically that weren't out there every day. And honestly, I mean, sometimes photographing an awful lot of nonsense, but um, yeah. There's just no way to manage it. And, and how do you yeah. turn it into a nice, neat archive? I mean, I remember going to Charles's library the very first time I went, and there were nice, neat stacks of pulps and all this kind of thing. I don't think there's anything, anything you know, that, that's, that corresponds. And no, you can't get a nice, neat, neat set of Tor.com or Subterranean.com or Clark... Well, you, you kind of came with Clark's World because they've brought it into individual like ebook issues sort of thing. But well, it's, yeah. it's, they're just these sprawling, ongoing things. And how you, you deal with that, I don't know. Well, the, the, yeah, the availability of it is not the issue. I mean, one of the things um, that was always fascinating to me was the, uh, the, the, way, the way science fiction writers got computers wrong. I mean, uh, a few years after, I think it was, um, oh, um, I'm blanking on the name. The guy from Bell Labs who was very influential yeah. in, in information theory and that, and that sort of thing. Um, had written an article in 1953 or something about, well, with transistors and what, what amounted to uh, uh, you know, what we would now think of as, uh, as uh, I forget what he called it, but we're now thinking it was a thumb drive, a solid-state solid storage. Mm -hmm. He was saying, 
in, in the mid-50s, he was saying computers are going to be uh, you know, the size of a typewriter in another 20 years or so. Yeah. And science fiction writers completely ignored that. So you had Asimov writing the last question, I think was his story, in which the computer is an entire asteroid because the only way you can store all this information is to have a computer that's thousands yep. and thousands of cubic meters. Yep. Uh, so now we have, we've solved that problem, but we haven't solved the problem of, um, of what, well, what John Crowley calls snow. This is one of the other interesting things to me about, this, mm. is, this is shifting topics again, but it's not unrelated. I know. Yeah. Uh, Crowley's Snow is one of the most, one of the most beautiful science fiction stories he wrote. Yes. And it deals with people who are surrounded by little electronic buzzing uh, things that sound like, well, they already have them, these little mosquito things that take constant video of your life. And then they archive it, and you can go visit the person in their mausoleum and, and look at their life. But it's just random access of hundreds of tens of thousands of hours of meaningless stuff. Yeah. And how do you find anything in that? And the, the, the tragedy of his story, apart from the fact that these images begin to decay over time, is that you have all this information and you have no idea how to access what you want from it. Yes. And it strikes me that Crowley, who is very much not a hard science fiction writer, nailed the problem much better than Asimov had 20 years earlier when he was saying we're just going to get more and more and more storage. Yes. Um, I think that's so, absolutely so true. Yeah, we've got we've got this problem. Well, it's, 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 it's something that fascinates me in general, and this is another parenthesis within a parenthesis, is that sometimes science fiction writers, who are not hard SF writers, nail things better than the hard SF writers do because the science fiction, the non-hard SF writers are simply thinking about social and human needs, and that they will probably be fulfilled someday, and will fulfill them with something like electronic mosquitoes. And Crowley didn't know how this was going to work. He didn't care how it was going to work. No, but he could see the, the problem. Yeah. Yeah, and some of the older hard SF writers ploddingly, uh, creatively tried to work out the technology piece by piece based on what they knew. And what they knew was almost always premature and almost always very frequently wrong. Yes, yes. Uh, and that's how you, you know, we now end up faced with the idea that we can have, you know, 100 terabits of data kicking around our homes. Mm -hmm. uh, something which would have probably taken Asimov's asteroid to store. I mean, I was talking to a friend, oh, two days ago. And they have literally 25 terabits of video kicking around really? the house. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, you know, they, 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 you know, the storage is cheap, and they had started ripping their DVD collection at high res because they wanted to be able to watch it over the network and get rid of the discs. Right. So there's you know, just, just a normal, okay, slightly atypical um, suburban home with 25 terabits of data storage in it. You know, which once upon, I mean, I remember them saying at one point it was a terabit. I think at one point it was supposed to be uh, the equivalent of every page in the Library of Congress scanned as text. And you go, I believe that's probably true, yeah. Um, and now. And are, yeah, and, and when you mention people doing that, most of the people I know now are, uh, you know, the same people who got rid of their VHS tapes 15 years ago are getting rid of their DVDs now. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then there's. You bet. I mean, there's talk. I don't know if it's going to be, be you know, true this year, but there was talk that at least one or more of the major record companies will abandon CD in the next 12 to 18 months, mm -hmm. and that will be the beginning of the end of that. I mean, I think we're down to only one factory left anywhere that still produces uh, video or audio tape, a you know, magnetic tape for for that purpose. So, I mean, the technology just dies and washes away. But some things, you know, remain con you know, remain constant. That's the content. I mean, you know, to bring us all the way back around to one place where we started, which was our 
recommended reading process and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the, 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 the urge to consume story remains. The urge to create and distribute story remains. And, you know, one thing that I've said a few times is that we live in an era where the idea of a good or bad year no longer makes any sense, I think. I think that's true, and I think that's. I mean, there are seasonal eddies, obviously, in the, in, the, in the industry. But the other thing that seems to be remaining true, and I was looking, uh, I've just been reading the. Uh, oh, I'm probably a third of the way through your year's best. Nice. And one of the things that um, that's valuable about something like this, especially historically, I mean, I'm thinking, think about somebody reading one of your year's best anthologies twenty or thirty years from now. Uh, yeah. That's like reading Terry Carr or. Uh, or, or Judith Merrill now, and it really is important because what it tells you yeah. is that there are still, in addition to uh, lots of good fiction writing, there's still writers that are better than other writers. Sure. There's yes. Still, uh, you still can make a name as a short fiction writer. You still can, uh, you know, uh, publishing a variety of venues online. Uh, uh, sometimes putting stories on your own website. Sometimes uh, um, publishing them in a in a mainstream magazine, in an e-zine, whatever, uh, that we have not got to the point where literature has become so democratized that good writers disappear in the wash. No, not at all. Good writers still bob to the surface. Not oh, all of them, oh, and maybe not for years. And you know, if someone said, you know, like, are you optimistic or pessimistic, I have to say, now, constantly optimistic, really. Uh, I mean, I look at my, I mean, you, you brought up the year's best, and... Mm. There are, are at least three writers in there, or four, who are almost brand new to me, who are terrific. And who I've never heard of. I'm looking at the names right now. I'm sure Lily Yu is one of them. Uh, An Awaimayala would be another. Ken Liu yes. would be another. All uh, of whom are terrific. Dylan Horrocks is not a name I recognize. Dylan Horrocks is an established New Zealand comics writer. Ah, And believe okay. it or not, that story, when you read it, is his first published story. Print, you know, text story. Really? Yeah, I believe so. Um, and you'd probably, I mean, the rest of them will be reasonably familiar to you, but there is, you know, I mean, hey, I remember when Cat, I mean, Cat Valenti's in the book with a terrific story, and mm. I remember when Cat was a, a, a brand new name that people weren't all that familiar with. There is still a constant influx of exciting books. I mean, I was, uh, I tweeted yesterday, because you're talking about Twitter, I was tweeting yesterday about the case to be made for our mutual friend Jeremy Lassen being mm -hmm. seriously considered for best editor long form at the Hugo's this year. And I'm almost tempted, though it runs against every other urge of mine in terms of doing things, to run a campaign on his behalf, though he'd probably be horrified. And the reason I'd do it is, if you look at the first novels particularly that he has uh, commissioned for or, or purchased for Nightshade. He has shown mm -hmm. a remarkably good editorial eye for, for new and first novels, and that's something that should be lauded and applauded. Um, so first of all, is recognizing him and, and, and the effort that's happened there. But also, you know, they've found... I mean, if you'd said to somebody, go find 14 first novels, you'd be thinking, well, most of those would be junk. But mm -hmm. just, just because you've been... Just cynicism and everything else. But the truth is... There's a batch of really good books in there, well, well, whether, it's Will, whether it's Will McIntosh's or Stina Licht's or uh, Cameron Hurley's or whoever else's, some really good books. Oh, and one of the things that happens um, to an editor like 
Jeremy, is that if you're editing mostly first novels, that means you're editing mostly novels by people that nobody has heard of. Yeah. And you're not going to get the kind of automatic recognition that, uh, I'm not going to mention, well, I shouldn't mention any names, but, you know, established writers mm. uh, who have established editors that they've worked with for a long time. Sure. Of course those editors are going to get credit. Um, and there's no doubt in my mind that, uh, oh, David Hartwell, for example, absolutely has earned credit as one of the major editors in the history of science fiction. Sure. Uh, uh, but then again, partly that's because people like Gene Wolfe have become the major figures in science fiction. How do you recognize an editor who finds new talent these days, especially when the new talent is, by force of circumstance, having to gravitate towards small presses? Well, well, partly you start recognizing the small press editors then. And I would oh, yeah. say historically, and I know you would acknowledge this, one of the truths is that David, in his time, found more than his share of new and exciting first novelists and whatever oh, else. Absolutely. That's, you know, I mean, I, I suspect it's partly a career thing, and when I think about it for a minute, uh, which I haven't really done before now, which is that when you start out as a beginning editor in a, in a major publishing house, you have to go out and find the writers that you're going to groom and work with rather than be able to you know, work with the top writers in the, in the house. That's the senior editors who do that. So now David, who is right. you know, very far along in an incredibly distinguished career, is editing major, major writers, as is, say, Patrick Nielsen Hayden or mm-hmm. as well as whoever else. Um, but a new editor walking in at Tor is go- or anywhere else is going to have to find you know, their own new writers to um, deal with. So, yeah, I don't know. All right. And, this, uh, and, and what's fascinating historically is if you look back at editors, um, well, I mean, w- one of the other uh, influential editors certainly was Fred Pohl, um, who was, I learned from talking to Betty Valentine, was, was basically their, their consultant on the beginning of what we now think of as the, the, the paperback science fiction revolution in the early 50s. Yes, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, Betty was actually doing the editing, but she was asking Fred everything. So when you have a classic like, let's say, Sturgeon's More Than Human, yeah. which basically, on Fred's advice, Betty said, why don't you write, why don't you take this novella and expand it into a novel? Um, well, Sturgeon may have had a reputation by then, but he didn't He didn't have a reputation as a novelist. Yes. Um, and yet that kind of editing uh, made a huge difference at that time. Yeah. And if you go back even a year or two before that, there was a guy at Doubleday named Walter Bradbury, who hmm. said to, to Ray Bradbury, no relation, why don't you put together some of those Martian stories you've been writing? <laughs> that worked out okay. It worked out okay for him, yeah. Uh, but, so by and large, I mean, I'm, I'm, by the way, I should say as a parenthesis, I'm really pleased that a few years ago the Hugo Award decided to recognize long-form editors. Uh, yeah. Even though by and large it's a very difficult category for most Hugo voters to vote on because yes. they really don't know who does what. And I'll also further add, since parenthetical asides are a specialty here, that I was delighted that our mutual friend Lou Anders won last year. I thought he was an incredibly deserving winner. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but I think, yeah, I, if, if you said to me, who now would I love to see win? I, I mean, I'd love to see Jeremy win. I'd love to see him nominated and win. And I don't say that simply because I've worked with him or anything else, uh, but because of the achi- editorial achievement you can plainly see that's come through his publishing house in the last 12 months. I mean, that that's him. I mean, it's also the entire team at Nightshade and everything else. But Jeremy is the the, the, the fiction editor there, the senior editor and stuff. So yeah. you know, my, my hat goes off. And also, to tie it back loosely into this rambling thing we're having, a sign of great optimism. I mean, if, if they can find, you know, a, a pile of excellent first novels from people we had either barely heard of or only slightly heard of, 
and produce a convincing line of books for a year and, and on into the future, I assume. Well, that's a, that's a heck of a thing. Uh, oh, and, yeah. and there's you know new short story writers, and we'll talk about some of those. So I mean, it's it's just that you know someone will say, was it a great year for YA? Well, you know maybe you know yes it was. Was it a great year for short fiction? Well, we appear to have missed the five or six really startlingly good stories that makes it look like a uh, a great um, year, and yet somehow it's still a very good year. Um, and if, you know we were talking just before the podcast started, like. Was it a great year for science fiction? Well, I don't know that it was a great year for science fiction. It was a pretty good year for science fiction novels. And yet there are at least two major, major science fiction novels coming out in January, within the next two weeks or three weeks. Mm. So you know, I mean, that's just the vagaries of timing. Uh, and you can't even say they're minor novels because, I mean, like, Al Reynolds is a major, you know, major selling science fiction novelist. So, um, you know, really... It's it's just a crapshoot how how it plays out. So yeah, I think I tend to agree. And it fascinates me, and I've I've thought sometime about trying to do a history of science fiction careers. Is what happens, what what causes a writer to move from, what's the tipping point for a writer? Uh, one of the people that you'd mentioned, and I think uh, is she in your is Kitch Johnson in your yes your yes she is okay. Now Kitch is somebody who. I've known for years because at, at the International Conference on the Fantastic, years ago, we gave her uh, the Crawford Award uh, for, I think, the Fox Wall. I think it was her. Uh, and, and it looked like, okay, here was a uh, literate, genteel fantasist. Mm-hmm. And somehow, over the last five years, I think probably the tipping point might have been the story Spar. She became one of the most exciting new science fiction, short fiction writers in the field. And I, I, I'd be willing to wager that a lot of people, when they think of Kids Johnson, don't think of her first novel at all now. I I think that you're you're almost certainly correct. The earlier books, and I mean, l- lest we forget, she has a collection coming out from Small Beer in August, right? And I'm going to mm-hmm. bet that everybody writes that up as her first collection. But she it's actually not. had another. Oh no, no, she had a collection out some years ago. Did did Kids? Yeah. Uh, Came out from a small press, almost self-published. Uh, a hmm. crowd called Scorpius, I think, were the publishers, um, and it wasn't widely seen around the place. And I think actually some of those stories are going to be recycled into the um, the small beer collection. But what well, happened? What happened is sometimes happens. I mean, I have this theory, right? Uh, just to, to to be boring for a second. And my theory is that authors or writers don't evolve in a nice, smooth, evolutionary curve. They actually evolve in fits and starts in steps. They just suddenly pop up in, in, in steps, right? Mm-hmm. Really? Huh. Um, um, and for Kidge, somewhere around about 2006 or seven. and actually, I mean, you say that the key story is Spar. The actual key story, I think, was the evolution, evolution of trickster stories among the dogs of North Park. Because before, okay, that could be... Before that, the stories were of a somewhat, I felt, more predictable type, not to put them down. But then she, mm-hmm. she did that story. Uh, then we got 26 Monkeys, also the uh, Abyss, yeah, The Cat Who Walked a Thousand Miles, Story Kit, The Man Who Bridged the Mist. Some great stories. Uh, and there were other earlier good stories, but these were the really great ones. But, I mean, I, yeah, I'll be curious to see how people react to, the story, to this anthology and whether anybody but remembers it. And also now, well, did you realize she's had three novels out? My goodness, she wrote a she had novel. Fox. 
They had Jet Fox for one, and there was one called, it was a Japanese title to one, I think. Um, sure. oh, what am I thinking? Fudoki. Yeah, sure, Fudoki, uh, okay. yeah. But according to this, he says, because I'm looking at, you know, ISFDB, um, Kids Johnson co-wrote a Star, a Star Trek novel. Oh, really? Well, Dragon's Honor with Greg Cox. Huh. There you go. I mean, I'm well, here's the thing I don't know why I'm surprised, but I am. There you go. Well, well, we should I mean, we should be celebrating Kid because she's she's there. She's a high profile person, and I I remember talking to her about a year ago because she comes to the international conference all yeah, the yeah. time. That you know, how long how long do you have to be writing before people say you're a hot new writer? Uh, before people stop saying you're a hot new writer? I mean, I'm looking at this. She was she's been publishing since 1988, and suddenly she's high profile. Well, that's because, with the exception of Fox Magic in 93, and maybe the Fox Woman, the novel, um, the stuff didn't make a, a great impact, unfortunately. Not, not sort of a, as a reflection of the quality of it, but it just didn't make that kind of impact. And I think to, to go from being either hot and yeah. new or weirdly forgotten, you need to stake a regular place in people's awareness. And I think that it was when... Um, Kidge began putting together a string of stories. You know, when Trickster Stories was followed by 26 Monkeys, was followed by Cat, followed by Spar, you're going, oh, she's really good, and she's up on the awards, and she's up again. And, she, and that's like, well, which Kidge Johnson story is likely to be on a major award ballot this year? Much like with Michael Swanwick. You know, it's like, mm. Michael Swanwick, no one's surprised now that, yeah. that he would be up for major awards. But at one point, no one had heard of him. Well, that's not quite right. his first story is up for Nebula, so that probably throws that theory out the window. But anyway, as we ramble, Gary. As we ramble, well, let me okay. Let me change the subject and get back to my friend Rusty because I okay, think yes. he no, no, yeah, he needs to be remembered. Rusty Hevelin was. I have a photograph of him, which I think I got from uh, from Phil Farmer's collection. I went down and looked through a bunch of photographs uh, right after he died. A photograph of the 1968 Baycon with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Donald was with, with Rusty Hevlin. For people who, who have seen Rusty in the last 20 years, probably uh, the best story about him is when uh, Gate Haldeman told me this story when they were bicycling through the Netherlands or something, and kids were running after him, shouting "Santa Claus" or whatever. <laughs> because Rusty is the classic guy with the baseball cap and the long, utterly immaculate white beard. I actually found a photograph of him before he had the beard. I learned that his name was Rusty from his red hair. Uh, and this is a photograph from the 1968 Baycon, which is a famous convention, famous world convention, because of because of the counterculture in Berkeley meeting the science fiction world for the first time. Uh, it was kind of kind of the ideal Philip K. Dick Worldcon, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a picture of Rusty and Forrest Ackerman and Donald Wolheim. Um, and I was thinking, okay, and 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 a Japanese person whose name I should remember, but I don't. Yeah. Um, and it occurred to me that I, at one point, had met Walheim only once or twice, I think. I, no, I've met Walheim a few times. I met um, uh, Forey Ackerman a couple of times. Yeah. And I'd known Rusty for as long as I'd known Joe and Gay Haldeman. And I was asking myself, apart from the fact that he was uh, a wonderful raconteur and he's one of these people who had this you know, encyclopedic memory of the pulp magazines, I remember talking to him about he was aware of when Campbell took over Astounding, for example. He was a teenager yep. then, and it was a big change. He's not old enough to remember seeing amazing stories uh, for the first time, like Jack Williamson did when he was alive. 
but I was I was asking myself, uh, is he the last contact I had with that group called First Fandom? Yeah. Um, and is he the last contact anybody has with that group called First Fandom? Because uh, I think I think Earl Kemp is Dave Kyle's still alive, group. isn't he? Who is David Kyle? David Kyle, yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm, I'm saying I, I'm guessing we could count on the fingers of one hand the people. The definition, as I've heard it, is people who are actively involved in fandom prior to the first Worldcon. That is, yeah. people who are involved in fanzines and regional. That means prior to what, 1937, 38, something like yeah, that. Yeah. And there are fewer and fewer of those people alive. And I remember having had conversations, at glancing conversations at conventions with all of them, and coming away thinking somebody should do an oral history with that person. And some people have. There are a number of interviews with people like Walheim because he was such a huge influence in science fiction publishing for so many decades. Um, and Forey Ackerman certainly made his views visible in a lot of places. I think Rusty is the one person in that group who may have been the least celebrated and the least interviewed. Yeah. And and you have to think, what's what memories are gone with him now? Well, but that, that, yes, of course. Which, of course, is true whenever one of these people uh, you, know, f you know, pass away. I mean, it was true when Charles died. There was an enormous amount mm -hmm. of knowledge that was lost with Rusty. With anybody who's, I mean, when, when David Hartwell may be many, many, many years from now, when he when he dies, there'll be an enormous amount of information. When when uh, Barry Lo uh, Barry Malsberg dies, there'll be an enormous amount of knowledge mm -hmm. that will be lost to us. And I don't see any great things happening to capture it. Unfortunately, it, and it's a sad thing, but it's it, it's a natural part of life, I think. Unfortunately, well, I mean, uh, not to be very the, the, the difference is this: this is this is one of the things where I become hypersensitive again because science fiction and fantasy and horror are not uh, treated as archivable by the academic mechanisms set up to do that. Yeah. Uh, the way, in other words, by and large, by the time John Updike died a few years ago, by the time Saul Bellow died a few years ago. There were scores and scores and scores of archivable oral histories, uh, memoirs, and so forth and so on, and and even you know less distinguished writers than that uh, have a lot of kind of history which has been recorded because they've re re regarded themselves as as assets. What interests me about Rusty in particular, as opposed to people like Walheim, and, and, and this this goes this would apply to Dave Kyle as well, is that he was his reputation, his history in the field was that of a collector, a huckster, uh, a fan. Yeah. Uh, and, and the fan histories are the ones that aren't being collected. I know that there are uh, projects, there was a project, which I don't know if it's still active at the uh, um, at Michigan State University, I believe, uh, called the Science Fiction Oral History Project, which was very ambitious for a while and I haven't heard from it lately. Uh, there was this videographer, this filmmaker, Eric Solstein, who was doing video interviews. But again, mostly focusing on uh, well-known writers and historical figures, and not so much on the people who lived the field. And um, that that history, the history of reading science fiction, isn't being recorded as well. And our friend Justine Larbalestier, when she did her uh, wonderful book called The Battle of the Sexes in Science Fiction, discovered that. She was trying to find out what women were reading science fiction in the 30s. Yes. And by a lot of really hard digging into letter columns and archives and that sort of thing, found that there were a lot more women science fiction readers than anybody suspected and had a lot more influence on the field than anybody suspected. Yes. And what I'm worried about is that that, that's, that history of reading 
is what's disappearing. And, and, and I, I don't know right. how you change that around either, or turn that around either. You need passionate people who are going to go out and start reporting that stuff. You know, and I'm, I'm not sure where that that motivation is going to come from, how that information will be captured. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, absolutely, it's a problem. And I mean, at one point, I had hoped that podcasting would have been a mechanism to get, to get this information from Charles, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, though that obviously never eventuated. Um, and I, I, I wonder about people like, yeah, you know, Mel, I mean, Melsberg or whoever else. I mean, uh, let me ask you this. Who are the people that you know of that archivists should be talking to to record this information that will be lost over time? Well, um, we've already mentioned people like, like Dave Kyle and Earl Kemp. I think they're part of that group. I think the other thing is to talk to some of the writers and publishers and editors as they were readers. I mean, David Hartwell has a wonderful account in Age of Wonders of his own experience of reading science fiction. Mm -hmm. And the problem academics make is talking to people only about uh, their own fiction, about their own history of writing, about their own careers and that sort of thing. I had a lot of conversations over the years with Philip Jose Farmer and about how much Roy Rockwood's juveniles meant to him when he was a kid in Mm -hmm. the 20s. Uh, The kind of stuff he read, the kind of uh, discovery of Edgar Rice Burroughs. All that becomes... Uh, condensed into the one question that you see in every interview that you see, what yeah. were your influences? Yes. If you ask a writer what their influences were, it's not going to work. No, uh, no. And sometimes they're going to lie to you also, because sure. I've, I've talked to writers uh, who who claimed influence. What they want to do is they want to make themselves, not mentioning any names, look more literary than they really are. Sure. So you talk to somebody, I'll give you an example, because this is one that I know of personally. I was talking to Gordon R. Dixon, who was a yes. very fine writer whose reputation seems to have disappeared or dimmed at least in the last few years, um, and whose Dorsai series clearly was hugely influenced on the whole Star Trek phenomenon, the whole Klingon thing. Um, but I remember uh, he was in an academic convention once, a science fiction research association convention, and people asked him about his influences, and he started talking about Balzac. Now, I have no doubt that he read Balzac and liked Balzac. But it was also clear, talking to him afterwards, that he thought, well, these these PhDs want me to talk about real literary influences. I'm not about to talk about uh, Stanley Wine. No. Hmm. I don't know. You have to have people who are willing to look at writers as readers and, and, and kind of get a sense of how the field was read in different decades. And yes. I think that that has a huge amount to do with shaping how the field is uh, is, is written. Yes, very true. I think it's very true. I don't be interested to see what happens. I'm going to begin to wind up a little bit, and I've got a, a weird question for you that I'm going to ask on the okay. podcast, Gary. This mm. is episode 82 of the Cood Street Podcast, yes. uh, which has had various titles over its life, but is now actually the Cood Street Podcast. Um, and there are three, I think, non-authoritative um, episodes, which arguably are or are not Cood Street podcasts. The first bo- Boxing Day mega podcast, the New Year's Day mm-hmm. podcast, the Australia Day podcast, one or two others, which I think would bring this up to be about episode 85 or 86. So first of all, I'm not sure whether we should count the non-series ones now or not. And there's a, a serious ramification, or at least a really non-serious, non-important ramification, and that is that it would bring the 100th episode a good month closer to get Gary. Well, we can have 200 episodes. 
Well, that's that's years away, Gary. Don't, don't, don't go mad. No, I mean two separate 100th episodes, one counting the Australian <laughs> podcasts and one not counting them. So we, we have two celebrations. So what should we do for a 100th podcast? Is that what well, you're getting at? To some degree. And actually, I think, and this is just off the top of my head, should we, to some degree, throw it out to our dear listeners to over the coming month, yeah, over the coming month, email us at, um, oh, jonathan.stran at gmail.com. Would be would be fine, and I'll forward them to you, or comment okay. on either of the, the the feeds for it, and give us ideas of what about what you would like to see us do to celebrate our hundredth episode. I know that uh, Galactic Suburbia baked cake. I've talked about a T-shirt design competition. We could have special guests, maybe, um, or we could just have a normal podcast, the pair of us nattering on, as we tend to, um, or we could we we could celebrate with an hour's silence, Gary. We could give them all some respite from our insight. We could do an endless meandering. We could do a John Cage podcast. Exactly. This is, this is, this is the sound of the audience becoming <laughs> disturbed at the silence. <laughs> yeah. So there's that sort of a thing, but uh, I think we should we should we should ponder it. I mean, there's the, the as I say the official numbering because this is either as I say episode 82 or episode 86, depending on how you count it. Uh, I, have, I have a question. I have a related question for you. When we uh, started this, did you did you have any idea we would be talking about episode eighty two or eighty six or one hundred? No, and in fact, it's very clear when you go back and read the all too frankly lamentably brief uh, posts that accompany each episode that we I, there was no idea that we would even do a second one. You know, mm. it was kind of like, oh, we'll do it, and we'll sort of see what. We're doing, I think there's a comment, with a little luck we'll podcast regularly, so we hope you enjoy it kind of thing. Mm. And then all of a sudden for the second episode, it's like, here's the second of our weekly podcasts. And then it was like, well, we'd said it, so it had to be true. So yeah, I had no idea that we would have done five of them, never mind 50 or 80 or 100 or whatever we may ultimately do. Um, So yeah, it's very strange. Uh, I mean, I was doing, I'm, I'm on a news group. And every mm-hmm. year, people summarize their year's activities into like a little metric, you know. So like, the you know the year's worth of Gary might be you know two you know two books of criticism, uh, mm. uh, twelve columns, a year in review essay, whatever else might have happened. And so I was sitting there going, well, okay, this year there were four books, there were twelve issues of reviews edited, there was this, 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 and there were fifty-one podcasts. And I just thought, God, that's a lot of podcast. You know, um, mm-hmm. so I'm a little bit surprised. I'm delighted that even now, I mean, like I thought last week was a little bit rambly at times, but we're always rambly. Um, but people were saying they enjoyed it, which I just find just very heartening and pleasing and flattering, um, but very surprising. How about you? Did you have any idea that we would still be going and with no real end in sight? I wasn't, um, I, I, I not, as I said to you before, I'd not even begun listening to podcasts before we started doing this. And as, as you and I know, and as we have mentioned, at least way back in the beginning, we were having weekly conversations anyway. And I sure, think yeah. what you said, well, just, we'll start recording them. And had the podcast stopped, we would have been having our weekly conversations. Sure. Um, the fact that people, I, the fact that people found it fascinating still dumbfounds me. All I can think of is that, um, we can guarantee that after, I think, okay, is this a fair guarantee? After a year of doing this, yes. we can guarantee that out of every 
60 or 70 or 75 minute podcast, there will be at least 35 seconds that's worthwhile. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That's a big, that's a big, that's a big guarantee. I don't know if I could go there, Gary. Uh, this is this is in defense of our rambling. Some one of us must say something interesting <laughs> once per podcast. And, and the contest, the contest of my readers to find out what it is. Well, I had this terrible thing. There's a uh, podcast awards, right? Uh, I forget the name of the things right now. And you had to enter to be considered. And I did put the Coot Street podcast in. And they mm-hmm. said you had to provide 10 minutes of your best audio of the year as a sample. Oh, and I could not, and this is before we'd done a bunch of the interviews that we've done that have been great, but I could not for the life of me think of what I would put up as a representative 10 minutes that wasn't just any 10 minutes at all. Well, that's my problem, too. I, I mean, I, I, I'm very appreciative of uh, people who, who seem to listen to the podcast and, and get something from it. But I've also had the experience, as I suspect you might have, well, uh, of, of, of writing an essay, for example, but you, where you clearly don't know where you're going, and, uh, and, 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 and you send it off hoping it's acceptable, and then it turns yeah. out to be people really like it. Uh, yeah. More than something you've really given a lot of thought to. So it could be the same thing with the podcasts. I, I, I don't know uh, uh, if you were asking me what the best part of the podcast was. I have no doubt that there were some uh, things that we were talking to Ursula about. That, sure. Uh, but then, you know, you can talk to Ursula about anything, and she's Ursula, and she's going to sound brilliant. So well, I don't think we can take much credit for that. I think there actually are a batch of bits and pieces, and uh, we were just being complimented the other week about the ones we did in Reno, where we are talking to Joe Walton, which was really interesting, and Stan uh-huh. Robinson, and Ian McDonald. In fact, generally, there I mean, you talk about there being a good 30 seconds of usefulness in the average podcast, and I think that applies to the ones that we do, just a pair of us. But yeah. our guests have worked really hard to make us look good over the last 12 months. You know? And well, I think... We could certainly ask our listeners who they would like to see as guests. We, we could. Um, what surprises me now that I look back at these is just how many really interesting people have come on the podcast as we go back to, you know, sort of the, the beginnings of the year. I mean, I think I'm just trying to work out what was the first podcast of 2011 for us. Uh, mm. So it's probably somewhere around podcast 30 or so, I guess. Sounds There's, about right. Uh, episode 32 was the first. So, setting aside the Australia Day podcast, Garth Nix was the first guest of 2011, followed mm-hmm. up by Karen Burnham, Jeffrey Ford, Liza Tromby, Farah Mendelssohn, Tansy Roberts, Liza Tromby again, Eileen Gunn, Ellen Clegis, and Jeff Ryman, uh, Ellen Detlow, Peter Straub, Terry Bisson, uh, Greg Bear, aren't we impressive? Joe Walton, Ian Mond... Ursula Le Guin, Ian McDonald, Al mm. Reynolds, Stan Robinson, Sophie, Paul Cornell. We've actually had a really stellar batch of guests over the year, Gary, now that I look back at it. I hadn't really quite thought of it like that before. I don't know if you had. Um, I had, no. And so I think we've been enormously gifted by chance and by the people we've had to come on and be interesting. And, we, and that's something to sort of be very grateful for and to see how we can continue in the coming year, because, of course, inevitably, there will be almost certainly another year of this. It seems like that. It seems like it's just too too much fun to stop. 
Yeah, well, yeah, it will be. And there's lots to do. We've got a few ideas for podcasts lined up and maybe things to keep it fresh. So with maybe you know, that will be the, 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 mo- the note that we'll sh- sign off on. I don't have any New, New Year's resolutions yet, Gary. I may not get any, but I've got a good 16 hours to come up with some. And you've got a little bit longer. Oh, I've got 48 hours to come up with New Year's resolutions. <laughs> and I, I, I do have to send out a special thanks to an avid listener who emailed me uh, after the previous podcast. Thank you very much. Um, and yes, a, a special thanks, I guess, at the end of what's nominally our second year of podcasting, but certainly is at the end of our first full year of podcasting. Uh-huh. A thank you to each and every listener. There are more than a thousand downloads on our Ursula Le Guin podcast, but there are sort of three, four hundred pretty regular downloads. So thank you to everybody who listens. It really does make a huge difference, I think, to doing this. It gives it some focus and point, you know, thing. And to all the people who comment and who tweet and respond and make it feel as though there's a bit of a community around the podcast, thank you very, very, very much. I think it makes it a really rewarding experience. And to all of our and friends, I mean, who, yeah, all of our friends have guessed. I'll underline the thank you, and uh, absolutely, I think I think what really kept this going past four or five episodes was getting a response to it. Yes, and so without sort of begging for comments with like a little tip jar, please please stay part of our community in 2012 and help us grow our, our community further because it's something that we enjoy and value, and you know we hope we get to see some of you during 2012 as well. We'll be at Worldcon, probably. We'll be at World Fantasy, probably. I don't know that we'll ever get around to doing one of those live-at-the-convention kind of podcasts. But um, we really, yeah, we, we really hope to see as many of you as we can and want you all to stay involved. And I'd also add, Gary, after, after, what, 50, I guess it's the 52nd episode, logically, of the year, which means 54, 55 hours of podcasting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Gary. I was going to thank you as well because um, I, I don't know how exactly to put this, but there are a lot of people I can get bored talking to, and you and I were talking for a good year before the podcast began, mm. and these are still the same delightful conversations yeah. we've always had, and I'm glad that other people like to eavesdrop on them. Well, on that happy but slightly maudlin note, Happy New Year. Yeah, it's maudlin. Okay, Happy New Year to you. I hope you have a wonderful party this evening. Thank you. And, uh, We'll talk to you next week. Next week. Bye. All right. Bye.